Thank you, Peter, and good morning, everyone. As we have our Bibles open in front of us, can we have a word of prayer together? Father of all grace and truth, we thank you that prophecy did not have its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we thank you for the truth, the authority, the penetration of your word. And we pray now that that same Holy Spirit who inspired that word would now illuminate our minds and grant us belief in the promises and obedience to the commandments of God. Amen. So I hope you still have a Bible in front of you at Habakkuk chapter 2. That was page 941 in the church Bibles. When we met Habakkuk, Uh, For the first time, uh, two weeks ago, he was not a happy bunny at all. There he was, about 600 years uh, before Christ, uh, sitting there in the tiny uh, nation of Judah, looking out upon uh, a nation that was a moral and spiritual wreck. Uh, All he could see was violence and injustice. And he's been crying out to God, when, O Lord, are you going to do something about this? When are you going to come and sort this mess out? These are your people, this is your nation. When are you going to do something about it? And then in chapter 1, the Lord replies and says, I'm actually going to do something about this pretty soon now. I'm going to send uh, and raise raise up against your nation the Babylonians. And they will visit, and they will conquer, and they will destroy, and they will punish uh, Judah for its wrongdoing. Uh, And that response uh, Habakkuk is deeply unhappy with. The Babylonians, they're even worse than we are. Where's the justice? How can that possibly be right? And so we left uh, Habakkuk, uh, the first verse uh, of uh, of chapter 2, um, looking for a further response uh, from God. He's there up on the ramparts of uh, Jerusalem, uh, chapter 2 and verse 1, watching and waiting for God to speak again. And then, uh, uh, by the time we reached chapter 3, last, uh, 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 last Sunday morning, nothing in Habakkuk's circumstances had, had changed whatsoever. And yet his... Outlook, his mindset, his mood is completely different. We found him in chapter 3 singing and praying and rejoicing. He was rejoicing in chapter 3 because of who God is eternally and unspeakably glorious. He's rejoicing because of what God has already, already done, delivered his people through the exodus and the entry to the promised land and so on and so forth. And he's rejoicing also in chapter 3 because of what God will yet do. So he began with a painful crying out to God in distress and he finished with rejoicing. So we still have, as, as, as the meat in the sandwich, sandwich as it were, chapter 2 to consider, which is, helps us to understand how he got from here to there, how he got from fear and frustration 
to rejoicing and to joy. I've had uh, several people ask me, Jonathan, why are you actually doing it in this order, chapter 1, then chapter 3, and then chapter 2? Uh, well, because I was told to. <laughs> it's, the, it's the simple answer. I'm just following instructions, as of course I always do. Uh, but there is a rationale here. Uh, I was able to, um, uh, to connect uh, last Sunday's uh, message with the Harvest Thanksgiving that we're having uh, at the same time. And in fact, I've discovered in chapter 2, as we deal with that uh, chapter this morning, uh, there, uh, there's a very clear, in my mind, uh, connection with uh, this, this general uh, idea of, of Bible Sunday and of focusing on the Bible as the Word of God. And I hope that you'll notice, as I, uh, as I try to draw out of this passage, some connections with uh, what we might call our doctrine of Holy Scripture. So, we have chapter 2, verses uh, 2 onwards, to consider together this morning. My summary of this chapter uh, would be as follows. If I boiled it right down to its essential components, I would say that what we have in chapter 2 is is the following. God speaks again. God promises that the world will finally be put to rights. And meanwhile, the righteous will live by his faith. That, I think, is the gist of this chapter. God speaks again. God promises that the world will finally be put to rights. And then, meanwhile, the righteous will live by his faith. And I'd like to say each of those three things in turn with you this morning. First of all, then, God speaks again. You recall that God had spoken in chapter 1, but it was a very incomplete message. Habakkuk had further questions, further concerns about the justice of what God had said he would do in chapter 1, raise the Babylonians against uh, the Judeans. So in chapter 2 and verse 2, we have God speaking again. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. So we now have a, a decisive speaking again from God. And here we have a word from God, which is, as we see in verse 2, to be preserved, published, and proclaimed. All of those things. But the particular thought that I would like to pull out of this verse and what follows about God speaking again is the fact that he is speaking again. This idea of God speaking and revealing his word progressively. God does not speak or reveal his mind all at once in the Bible. He speaks it over time in lots of different ways. And so we have the God speaking his word progressively. He reveals his word progressively within Habakkuk. There's more in chapter 2 than there was in chapter 1. Uh, there's progressive revelation of God's word within the Old Testament. There's progression from Genesis right through to Malachi at the end. And of course there's progression from the Old Testament, of which this book is a part, through into the New Testament. There is what we call progressive revelation. There is a movement from the revelation of the bud to the full flowering. There's a movement from shadow to substance. There's a building of the foundation and then the erection of the complete building. There is a movement from promise to fulfillment. There is progression 
in God's revelation. And the later revelation completes the earlier revelation. The later revelation complements the earlier, but never contradicts it or seeks to correct it. So when we look at God's revelation in the New Testament, we look at Jesus saying, referring to the old, saying not one jot, not one tittle, not a single part of one word will pass away. All will be fulfilled. We have the assurance from Paul to Timothy that all scripture, and he's thinking of the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament was still being written at the time, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. So the new never contradicts or undermines uh, the old, but there is a building, there is a progression going on there. And of course, this definitive revelation of the will and the mind of God is completed. Now God, I believe, does still, still speak through words of knowledge and words of prophecy, but the definitive written down uh, revelation of God is completed in Christ. We have a clear statement of this at the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 1. In the past, the writer says, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So a completion, a filling out, a fulfillment in the person and work and the revelation of the living word Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the end has come. The countdown has begun. So let me ask you this morning, is your Bible complete? The Bible in the Muyang language is still in its New Testament form. It's taken all those years to develop. But uh, but Tony and Carol know the work, their work may be complete in terms of translation, but the work of Bible translation is not complete. It will take many more years to, for the Muyang people to have a full Bible, Old and New Testament. And they realise that work is not yet complete. But we do have a complete Bible in English. Is your Bible, the Bible that you read and know and love and believe, a complete Bible? Or do you pick and choose the bits that you would like to know and the bits you would like to believe and the bits that you would like to obey? Is your Bible complete? It needs to be complete. Uh, even, the Bi- uh, even the devil, you know, is a Bible student and can quote the Bible. He does precisely that when he tempted the Lord Jesus. Uh, the devil came to Jesus and said, it's, risen, it's written, it's written in, in, in Scripture. But Jesus knows and knew his Bible better than the devil. And so Jesus' response to the devil is, it is also written. Jesus uh, knew that the devil was misquoting or misapplying the Bible on that occasion. You can look that up at some time in uh, Matthew chapter 4. Um, and when Paul, at the close of two and a half years of ministry and teaching in, uh, in Ephesus, came to take his leave of them with much uh, Uh, heart-searching and heartache, uh, he declared to them that he had not shrunk from proclaiming to the Ephesians the whole counsel of God, the entire counsel of God. 
So is our Bible complete? Because only a complete Bible will make a complete Christian. So that's some, there's some elaboration of this idea that here in Habakkuk chapter 2, God speaks again as part of the progressive unfolding of his word and his will. But now secondly from this chapter. In this chapter, God promises that the world will finally be put to rights. Habakkuk, as we have reminded ourselves, has been contemplating the dire situation and the uh, prospect of something worse to come. The weather forecasters think there's a violent storm on its way coming over the horizon today. Habakkuk knew because God had said that there was a violent nation just coming over his horizon, the Babylonians. He's contemplating that situation. But God is promising now in chapter 2 that despite and in fact through all of this activity, the world will finally be put to rights. God's determination to put uh, the world to rights is expressed in verses uh, 6 right through to verse uh, 19 in the form of a taunt song. A song of mockery. Now, if you think you are unfamiliar with a taunt song, then um, let me remind you, you get plenty of those at football matches. Just imagine that it's the 85th minute and that the home side is 4-1 up. Just imagine. I mean, it's difficult, I know. Just in your dreams, the home side is 4-1 up. Okay. And the away supporters are just quietly making their way out of the ground because they know they're not going to win this this one. The home supporters do a taunt song in the direction of the away supporters. We can see you slinking off. I love it. Um, And um, that's a a kind of taunt song. The difference here in chapter 2 is... Uh, whereas a taunt song at a football match would normally be by the winners against the losers, here the taunt song is placed in the mouth of the oppressed, in the mouths of the victims. It is they because God has let them know. This is, a, this is poetry, folks. This is Old Testament prophecy. This is poetry. God is placing into the, into the mouths of the victims what he has determined will be the judgment on the perpetrators, judgment on the Babylonians and on all the wicked, and what will happen to them. They'll basically get a taste of their own medicine. So there is a series of five woes, five promises or threats of disaster upon, first of all, verses 6 to 8, those who make themselves rich through extortion. Secondly, woe to those who use unscrupulous means to build their empires, verses 9 to 11. Then verses 12 to 14, woe to those who construct cities and towns on the proceeds of violent crime, verses 15 to 17. Woe to those whose idea of fun is alcohol-fueled sexual license. And then verses 18 and 19, woe to those who make and those who worship any kind of idol. And if you add in one or two other things such you find in in verse 17, 
that uh, these woes are pronounced on those who engage in uh, environmental uh, destruction. I think the reference to Lebanon here in verse 17 is probably a reference to the trees, deforestation. The Babylonians come in and cut, cut, cut all these wonderful cedars down. And also, do you see, notice the cruelty to animals also in verse 17. Why don't you add those things uh, on? There's an uncomfortably contemporary feel, I think, to the evil, the wickedness, the godliness, the pride, the arrogance upon which these woes, against which these woes are pronounced. And these are all, going back to verse 4a, all of these wicked, ungodly, cruel behaviours are all manifestations of human pride, of being puffed up, of being self-important, of self-glorification, as opposed to glorification of God. And what all this is saying is this proud world will finally be put to rights. All human glory in self will be finally swept away. And then, verse 14, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Does that sound like an impossible dream? Well, it must have sounded pretty impossible to Habakkuk in his day and his age with the prospect of the Babylonians about to, uh, to overrun Judah. But he believed and trusted in God's promise. And so can we. Because you know God has been continuing to work his purpose out. Move on now to the New Testament and what do we read? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, what have we seen? We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here's another development into the New Testament. A revelation of God's glory in Jesus Christ. But he's not only full of glory, his glory is manifested in grace and truth. Uh, the children are um, studying Moses in the groups this morning. Do you remember that the first miracle of Moses in Egypt was the turning of water into blood? But the first miracle of, uh, of, of, of Jesus was the turning of water into wine, John chapter 2, and thus revealed his glory. Our glory is in Christ Jesus Our delight is to proclaim him and thus hasten the day when the earth will be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. So God speaks again. God promises the world will finally be put to rights. And now thirdly, meanwhile, the righteous will live by his faith. This famous pregnant phrase, the righteous will live by his faith, is just three words, uh, apparently, in the original. The righteous, by faith, yes, it can do it, will live. It's about having a right relationship with God, that's the righteousness. It's about steadfastly clinging to God, that's the faith. And it's about drawing our vitality from God, that's 
the life. A phrase so pregnant with meaning, it's quoted three times in key points, a key point in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, where the focus, I think, is on this idea of righteousness, where Paul teaches that the gospel receives a righteousness that is not our own, but is received from God. And it was this realisation that gave a German monk called Martin Luther peace of mind and kick-started the great uh, Reformation. In Galatians chapter 3, the focus, uh, that when, when this uh, phrase is quoted from Habakkuk, the focus is on faith. We are saved by faith and not by doing the works of the law. And when the writer to the Hebrews quotes from Habakkuk uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, the focus is perhaps on the idea of life, of persevering until we, we receive the life that God has promised. Just think of it, just three words in the Hebrew original. It takes three books of the New Testament to explain and to expound and apply that great phrase. But the question I want to close with this morning is this. If all this is going to happen, the world is going to be put to rights, why not now? Why doesn't God put the world to rights now? Why did the righteous have to keep on living by faith and not by sight? If you look at uh, verse 3 of our chapter, you will see it put very clearly. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Do you see the definiteness of of God's promise? But the need to be patient while waiting for the promise to be fulfilled. But uh, Habakkuk does not tell us why we have to wait, why we have to be patient. The New Testament does tell us. Perhaps nowhere more clearly than in a writing of Peter, his second letter and chapter 3, where he says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There, I think, is the secret of the delay, an opportunity for us as Christians to herald, to proclaim, to share the gospel, and an opportunity for those who do not yet believe to believe and receive God's promise of new life. I don't suppose it ever occurred to Habakkuk to ask, is there any hope for the Babylonians? He just looked forward to their judgment. But again, if one more time this morning we look ahead to God's further revelation, we just see the following. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1 records the evasion of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The Israelites were carried off into exile. Some of the most able, such as Daniel himself and three young men whose names uh, became Shadrach, Meshach, Shach, and Abednego, uh, most able amongst the Israelites, were given important jobs in Nebuchadnezzar's court, and they became chief among the wise men of Babylon. But these young, wise, and able Israelites remained righteous before their Lord and resolved to live by faith in him. In due course, Babylon itself was conquered by the Persians, and a remnant of the Israelites returned to their own land. The rest would have stayed, 
400 years later, a baby was born far away in the, in the West, in Bethlehem, in Judea. Among the first to come and worship him as king was a group of wise men from the East. Yes, from the very area where Babylon had once proudly stood. God had maintained a witness to himself there all that time. Habakkuk has taken us on a journey from frustration to faith, from worry to worship, from sighing to singing. He's taught us the vital necessity of patiently trusting in God. Best of all, he has pointed us once again to Jesus, the living word from whose face shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and in whom all the promises of God are yes. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Let us pray. Amen. So be it. So be it, Lord, we will believe and trust your word. Amen. We believe and trust that you have promised that one day you will put this world to rights and it will be full of the knowledge of your glory. Amen. May it be true that for each of us that we will live by faith as your chosen and called people and in these last days seek to live to your glory and to share and proclaim your glory, your grace and your truth in a needy world. Amen.